0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I am Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it really is a great thrill to see so many of you here this evening in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. On view right now is a great exhibition, Chinese-American Exclusion Inclusion, that explores the centuries-long history of trade and immigration between China and the U.S. This is a history that has involved New York from its very beginnings and raises the question, what does it mean to be an American? I very much hope that you'll return during regular museum hours to visit the exhibition. And uh, also please do feel free to pick up a program on your way out this evening. We have uh, a lot of programs that are adjuncts to the exhibition. Tonight's program, An Evening with Justice Ginsburg, is the President Bill Clinton Lecture in American History. And I would like to thank Bernard Schwartz, who has supported this special program, and of course has supported the wonderful Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. Bernard is here here with us this evening. I also want to thank New York Historical Society board members uh, here with us this evening, beginning with our chair, Pam Schaffler. And I also want to recognize trustees Helen Appel, Norman Benzikin, Judy Berkowitz, Scott Delman, Carl Mangus, Rick Reese, Ira Unschuld, Eric Wallach, and Michael Weisberg, and to take this chance to thank them on behalf of all of us for what they do for this great institution. Thank you so much to all of you. Our program tonight will include a question and answer session. Um, we will ask you, as always, to line up in, uh, behind standing microphones to my left and to my right. We do that so that everyone in the room can hear your question and so that uh, audiences that access the, the program um, via iP- there are our iTunes uh, iPod um, podcasts, I guess I should say, can hear you as well we are really, really thrilled to welcome Associate Justice U.S. Supreme Court Ruth Bader Ginsburg to tonight's program. Justice Ginsburg began her long and decorated career as a professor of law at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, and then at Columbia University School of Law. As a professor, she was instrumental in launching the Women's Rights Project of the American Civil Liberties Union and was active in the legal fight against gender-based discrimination. Justice Ginsburg then served from 1980 to 1993 on the bench of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. In June of 1993, Justice Ginsburg was nominated by President Clinton as Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. She took the oath of office on August 10, 1993, and she has held the position ever since. We are also delighted to welcome Abby R. Gluck, a professor of law at the Yale Law School. Professor Gluck joined Yale Law School in 2012, having previously served as an associate professor of law and the Milton Handler Fellow at Columbia Law School. She has extensive experience working as a lawyer in all levels of government, including an early career position where she clerked for tonight's guest, Justice Ginsburg. Professor Gluck is an expert on Congress and the political process, legislation, federalism, state and local government, civil procedure, and health law. As always, before we begin our program, I'd like to ask you to make sure that anything that makes a noise, like a cell phone, is switched off, and also only photographs taken by our in-house photographer permitted this evening. Thank you.
1: you so much everybody and good evening can everybody hear me yes okay please make motions if you cannot hear us at any time during the program um, justice we're so grateful to you for being with us tonight and I myself owe my thanks to the New York Historical Society for inviting me to participate so the justice has had such an incredible career an academic women's rights advocate appellate judge Supreme Court Justice devoted mother and wife during a time when not many devoted mothers and wives were academics, advocates, or Supreme Court justices. (laughs) And we can't possibly touch on everything tonight, but I thought what we might do is touch on a little bit of all of this and then a little bit about the Supreme Court today. Um, So Justice, we're better to begin than at the beginning, especially given where we are. You are a New Yorker, tried and true, born in Brooklyn, educated at Cornell College and Columbia Law School, where you moved from Harvard to be with your husband when he was a associate here in New York, and a resident of Manhattan when you were on the faculty at Rutgers and Columbia. Um, How did New York shape you? How did your beginnings in Brooklyn and your education in New York lead you to the law and where you are today?
2: Well, first, I want to say that Abby is my shining example of Today women can do anything that their talent enables them to do. Abby is the mother of three children and she holds a tenured position at the Yale Law School. So uh, I am very proud of, of her.
3: Thank you so So now back to back New York. To New York. New
2: York. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't think, Abby, that I considered law when I was growing up in in Brooklyn, for one thing. Not only were there no women judges, but there were hardly any women lawyers. At Cornell, I worked for Professor Robert Cushman, who was my constitutional law teacher. The years were 1950 to 1954. And many in this audience know that that was not a happy time for our country. It was the heyday of Senator Joe McCarthy. There was a huge red scare. The senator saw a communist on every corner. And people were being hauled before the House Un-American Activities Committee, the Senate Internal Security Committee, and being asked to justify why they had been a member of some socialist youth group. In the 1930s, there were lawyers standing up for these people, reminding our Congress <clears throat> that there, let me take some water, that we have a First Amendment and a Fifth Amendment, and that the proudest thing about our country is that we have the right to think, speak, and write without big brother government telling us what is right thinking. So I got the idea that a lawyer could earn a living in in the practice, but could also help make things a little better for other people to put our community back in touch with its most basic values. So it was then that, that I... I took the LSAT, I think, in my junior year at Cornell. Uh, One test before Marty. Um, (laughs) And there was some concern uh, about this being an impractical choice. But then when Marty and I married the same month I graduated from Cornell. My family thought, well, that's okay. Ruth can go to law school, and if she can't get a job, she has a man to support her.
1: <laughs> well, just Justice, um, perfect segue into my next question, because it wasn't always that easy for you to get a job. Um, you were one of only nine women in your class at Harvard, uh, but you still managed to leave Harvard at the top of the class, the same with Columbia Uh, after you transferred, and yet you were still turned down for judicial clerkships. You were concerned about losing your job at Rutgers because you were pregnant, and you were turned down by I think something like a dozen of the top law firms in New York City, many of which are probably represented in the audience, (coughs) would die to have the justice there today. Um, But uh, it wasn't easy. So how did you navigate all of these obstacles, and how did that shape who you became?
2: Going back to the obstacles, I've said that I had three strikes against me when I graduated from law school. One, I was Jewish, and some of the downtown firms were still reluctant to hire Jews. Second, I was a woman, but the impediment, the real stopper, I was the mother of a four-year-old daughter. So the concern was, we might take a chance on a woman, but not one who is going to be rushing home when her child is sick. So I had the good fortune to have Jerry Gunther as my teacher at Columbia. And he was in charge of getting clerkships for Columbia students. He called Judge Palmieri in the Southern District of New York. He called Palmieri because Palmieri was a graduate of Columbia College and Columbia Law School and always took his clerks. In those days, district court judges had just one clerk. So Palmieri always chose a Columbia student. Uh, Professor Gunther said, I have a deal for you. I want you to hire Ruth Ginsburg. And Palmieri said, "That well, she's a woman. This isn't a problem. I've had a woman clerk. But she's a mother. So Professor Gunther said, Give her a chance, and if she doesn't work out, I have a young man in the, in the same class. He's going to a downtown firm, and he will take over if she doesn't do the job to your satisfaction. So that is the carrot and the stick. The stick that came with it was, if you don't give her a chance, I will never recommend another Columbia student. (laughs) But for women of my generation, it was getting the first job that mattered. They did the job so well that there was no problem about the second job. You may know Abby Justice O'Connor's story. So she graduates at the top of her class at Stanford. No one will hire her as a lawyer. So she volunteers to work for a county attorney. And tells the county attorney, I'll work for you without pay for four months. And at the end of that time, if you think I'm worth it, you can put me on the payroll. And that's how she got her, her first job. There were no anti-discrimination laws. Employers, Legal employers were totally upfront about not wanting any, any women. Now, the Rutgers story. So I started teaching at Rutgers in 1963, and then something wonderful happened two years later. I became pregnant. But I was on a year-to-year contract and really fearful that they wouldn't renew my contract because the suspicion will be, she says that she's gonna come back, but we don't believe it. I wore my mother-in-law's clothes for the last, couple of months. (laughs) My son, James, was conveniently born in September, so I I couldn't manage that. And my contract was renewed. On the last day of the term, I told my colleagues that when I returned in the fall, there'd be one more (laughs) member of the family.
1: It sounds like a great strategy. Uh, speaking of strategy, Justice, um, you, you landed on your feet quite clearly. Uh, and um, in the 1970s, uh, you became the first female tenured faculty member at Columbia Law School, and you also co-founded the ACLU Women's Rights Project. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the work that Justice did at the ACLU transformed gender equality. Um, but curiously, Justice, as you know, your clients were often, almost always, men. Um, This legal strategy was brilliant. You won five out of six cases on gender discrimination at the Supreme Court. But can you tell everybody a little bit about this particular legal strategy?
2: I should say first that I wasn't entirely neutral in the choices of the six cases. Three had women as plaintiffs, three men, and the only one that I lost was a male plaintiff that was in nineteen seventy-four. But the what we were trying to show was that stereotyping men and women was unhealthy for for everyone. And the perfect case for that was Stephen Weisenfeld's case, which like all of the cases that I dealt with in the in the 70s. None of them were made up. These were all real people who thought that they had suffered an an injustice and that the legal system could make it right. Anyway, Steven Weisenfeld's story is his wife was a, a public school teacher. She had a very healthy pregnancy. She taught into the ninth month. She went to the hospital to give birth, and then the doctor came out to tell Stephen, you have a healthy baby boy, but your wife died of an embolism. So Stephen was, as you can imagine, uh, just bowled over by this news, and he vowed that he would not work full-time till his child was in school full-time, that he would be a caring parent. And he figured out that with the Social Security benefits he could get as the sole survivor of a young child, and the earnings he could make up to the earnings limit, he could make it. He went to the Social Security office to apply for child-in-care benefits and was told, we're very sorry, Mr. Weisenfeld, but these benefits are available only for widows, not widowers, only for mothers, not fathers. Mm -hmm. Stephen wrote a letter to the editor of his local newspaper in Edison, New Jersey, and it was to this effect. I've heard so much about women's lib. This is my story, and he described how he was denied child in care benefits. Mm. The tagline of his letter was Tell that to Gloria Steinem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was a, a teacher in the Romance Language Department at Rutgers who read this l- letter, and she suggested to Stephen Weisenfeld that he get in touch with the New Jersey affiliate of the ACLU,
3: mm.
2: which he did. When his case came to the Supreme Court, there was a unanimous judgment. Three different opinions. The majority thought, we know that this case is reflective of the discrimination women encounter because women and men pay the same Social Security taxes, but they don't net for the women's family, the same benefits. Then there were a couple who thought that it was discrimination against the male as parent. A woman would have a choice. A man would not, he could not be the personal caretaker. He would have to spend full time earning a living. Then there was one who later became my chief, who was then Justice Rehnquist, who in every other case I argued successfully, he was always in dissent, but not in this one. He he took the baby's point of view. He said, this is totally arbitrary from the point of view of the baby. Why should the baby have the opportunity for the care of a sole surviving parent if the parent is female, but not if the parent is male? So that was... that case illustrated why gender-based discrimination is bad for everyone. It's bad for women and men Mm -hmm. and children.
1: (laughs) Um, Justice, I've heard you talk before about how you thought the 1970s was the first time that the court was really ready for change on the gender front. Um, Can you tell us, how does a court catch up to the times, and how do advocates know when it's the right time to press a social agenda?
2: How does one know? Because it's all, it's all around you. There was a revived women's movement starting in the late 60s, and as a great constitutional law professor Paul Freund once said, the justices should never be influenced by the weather of the day, but inevitably they will be influenced by the climate of the era now, think about Brown v. Board in that light. We had not too long ago been engaged in a war against racism, and yet our own troops going into that war were rigidly segregated by race. Mm-hmm. That was the beginning of the end of apartheid in America. So and that prelude, I think, is what gave the impetus from Brown v. Board. Indeed, how does the court know? Well, there was a brief filed on behalf of the government in Brown v. Board saying we are constantly embarrassed by the then Soviet Union because of our mistreatment of African Americans. Please court, end this forced segregation so that we will no longer be the butt of that kind of criticism. So yes, the justices, they don't lead the vanguard, but they catch up to where society has already gone. They put their stamp of approval on a change that has already occurred in the the society. And so they can be, um, in cases like Brown, or like the gender discrimination cases in the '70s ha- helped um, move things further in the direction in which they were all already moving.
1: So, just to follow up on that, Justice, you've often commented that there's a difference between cases like Brown and cases like Roe versus Wade, our most famous abortion case, and you've suggested that the court did the right thing in Brown, but that it might have been wiser for the court to exercise more restraint when it came to Roe and abortion. Um, Could you talk about that a little bit for us and explain uh, what might be the difference?
2: Well, the court did the right thing in its final judgment. The judgment in Roe, I never questioned, I applauded. Texas had the most extreme anti-abortion law in the country. No abortion unless necessary to save the life of the woman didn't matter that her health would be destroyed, it didn't matter that the pregnancy was the result of rape or incest. The only only ground was the woman's life. So that was the most extreme law in the nation and the court could have explained why that was a violation of due process and equal protection Mm. and put its pen down and then things would have continued. You could consider the progress toward Brown. Mm-hmm. Time and again, Thurgood Marshall said to the court separate but equal is not before you today. These facilities are not equal. Think of Sweat Against Painter when Texas. Was impelled to provide legal education for African Americans. It set up this law school that was so far inferior in every way. And then there was McLaurin, and we went from law school to university education. After there were three or four decisions going the right way, then Marshall said, Now it's the time Mm. that we can say, separate, forced separation is never never equal, and so I envisioned that same kind of progression with a, a woman's right to determine her own destiny, whether and when she will have a, a child. I thought the court would just say, Texas law is unconstitutional. The law was in a state of flux all over the United States. States were changing from the Texas extreme. Some states, including New York, uh, permitted access to abortion in the first trimester if a woman wanted it. She didn't have to give a reason. There were four states like that. There were several states that had moved toward the American Law Institute position, which were grounds. And so I I saw the progression continuing in that way. The Supreme Court spoke. State legislatures would react to it, some one way, some the other way, and then the court would get the next case and the next case. Instead, the court did it all. In one decision, made every law in the country even the most liberal, unconstitutional, and the opponents of access to abortion were then able to aim at one target one target, and that target was the nine unelected members of the U.S. Supreme Court. Easier than fighting in the trenches state by state, just go after Roe v. Wade.
1: So, Justice, we've obviously come so far since then when it, in terms of gender equality, um, but there are still more challenges. Uh, what do you think are the biggest challenges still facing us when it comes to gender equality?
2: One of the principal roadblocks for women is what I call unconscious bias. In one case brought in the 70s by Harriet Rab, who was running an employment discrimination clinic at Columbia, involved middle management jobs at AT AT&T. The women who applied for promotions, on the whole, scored as well as the men up to the very last test. The last test was called the total person test. (laughs) And women (laughs) flunked that test disproportionately. And why? Why? Because the interviewer was a, a white man People tend to feel comfortable with their own kind. So the interviewer, if he is interviewing someone who looks like him, feels at ease. But a woman is strange. He hasn't been accustomed to dealing with women in a business setting. The the clearest illustration of unconscious bias is what happened to symphony orchestras. In my growing up years, I never saw a woman, except perhaps a harpist, in a symphony orchestra. (laughs) Then someone had the brilliant idea of dropping a curtain between the auditioners and the people being auditioned. And lo and behold, we began to see women in numbers in every section of the orchestra. When I told this story at a music festival last summer, a young violinist said, you left something out. Not only do we audition behind a curtain, but we audition shoeless. (laughs) But that was such a perfect example of, I mean, there there was a critic for the New York Times named uh, Howard Taub. Taubman, who said, I can tell if a woman is playing the piano or a man every time, Blindfold me and I could tell. They gave him the behind-the-curtain test and he failed miserably. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's that unconscious bias. that it, is it, difficult. And it's still there. Another, and Abby, you must know this very well, Managing your family life and your work life is a constant challenge to do them, to do them both. And even though there are more fathers today than there, there were a generation ago who are doing their fair share of child raising, it's still dominantly women's work.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, just as on that note, I have to say that your marriage was very different. Uh, you had a marriage for the ages. Uh, your wonderful husband, Marty, who I had the privilege of knowing, um, followed you to Washington just as you followed him to New York. Um, he was the cook in the family uh, because we all know that you're not a very good cook. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and, uh, you know, it's just, I can't hear that story about you know, pat a balance without thinking about your marriage and, and how you did it and uh, what, what a model it was for all of us.
2: Cooking. Uh, <laughs> uh, Marty attributed his great skill in the kitchen to two women. The first was his mother, the second, his wife. I think he shortchanged his mother, <laughs> but he was right about me. For a number of years. Well, the division of labor was that I would be the everyday cook and Marty would be the weekend and company cook. <laughs> I had a repertoire of seven things. When I got to number seven, and I went back to number one. And they were, they were all fra- from a book called The Sixty Minute Chef. <laughs> and nothing took longer than you walk in the door and an hour later it's on, it's on the table. My daughter, Jane, in her high school years noticed the enormous difference between mommy's cooking and daddy's (laughs) and decided that I should be phased out of the kitchen entirely (laughs) and Marty should become the everyday cook. So in all the years I've been living in Washington, D.C., since 1980, I have not cooked a meal. (laughs) And how I've survived these four years since Marty died. My daughter comes once a month to cook for me. She fills the freezer with food. She feels an obligation to do that because she's the one who is responsible <laughs> <laughs> for getting me out of the kitchen. Well, the other thing, I think you know this from your own life, Abby, at different times, one adjusts to the other. So when Marty was a young lawyer, and aiming to make partner within five years, I'd say that I did the lion's share of the home and the child care. But then, in nineteen eighty, when I got my first good job in washington d c Marty moved with, with me. He had been teaching at Columbia Law School just one year at that time and loved it, mm-hmm. but he transferred to G- Georgetown um the amazing thing about Marty, he was the first boy I ever knew who cared that I had a brain. And he was so secure in his, in his own self that he never regarded me as any kind of a challenge, on the contrary. He, has, he was my biggest booster. For
1: 56 years. He was, he was really wonderful. I feel very lucky that I got to know him. Um, and he did
2: cook for us when we clerked. <laughs> um, I wish you'd explain that, that in addition to making delicious things for chambers, um, the law clerks invite other justices for lunch. So I don't do lunch. Instead, I had Marty make something that I could serve with tea. Then what he liked most is the spouses, the Supreme Court spouses met quarterly for lunch and they would rotate uh, catering responsibility. And Mari was always at highest in demand for <laughs> the, for catering, which is the, the result you know about A Supreme Chef yes. is a cookbook. It's the, I think it's the best-selling book in the Supreme Court gift shop. Yes. And it was it was the spouses' tribute to Marty. Um, he had over hundred thirty recipes on a disc. Thirty was selected thirty thirty one, thirty two, for this for supreme yeah. supreme chef. And I think Marty would have agreed that that was just what he would have wanted as a as a tribute.
1: It's a beautiful book. I highly recommend it. Um, <laughs> Uh, so let's turn to 1980 uh, and talk a little bit about the change that you just mentioned in your role when you move from being an advocate to being a judge um, so justice I'm just curious about that transition uh, how did you experience the change How is, was being a judge different from being an advocate as just one example of uh, very early in your tenure on the Supreme Court uh, you this, with the majority opinion in United States versus Virginia, which was the case challenging the exclusion of women mm-hmm. from the Virginia Military Institute, it must have been so different experiencing it from the bench as opposed to as an advocate
2: I mean it wasn't all that different because as a as an advocate, I tried to write a brief that a justice could take if he and there were only men in the court then um if he wanted to, so if you look at the Justice Brennan's opinion in Frontier against Richardson and compare it to the a c l u s brief, there are whole passages that it lifted from the brief, and that's the highest compliment an advocate could get so So I was writing my briefs from that point of view
3: mm-hmm.
2: to be persuasive um as this is the rationale for the position that I'm taking. So it wasn't my brief writing and my opinion writing, not all that different.
1: Um, Justice, you talk about um, the court, and you talk about a couple of qualities. One you talk about is moderation at the court and the importance of that. And then you also talk very frequently about the importance of collegiality. Uh, and by now, it's widely known. It's even the plot line of a new opera, if I'm not mistaken, that you and Justice Scalia are very close friends. Um, could you talk a little bit about this, uh, the very special collegiality of the court, and how it affects the everyday work of the court and your own experience there?
2: Compared to other institutions of government, the court is rather small, there are, only, there are only nine of us. And we know that we have to get along with each other because otherwise the institution will be impaired in the important job that it has. We begin every conference and every morning before we go on the bench by going around the room, each justice, shaking hands with every other. And that is a way of saying to my colleague, Yesterday, you circulated a really nasty dissent. <laughs> but we know that we're all in this together. We revere the court, and we want to make it work. So that that is what keeps us all together. And it is a, a bit like, like family. I had two cancer bouts during the time I was on the court, and my colleagues rallied around me and made it possible for me to get through both terms without without missing a sitting. It's perhaps old-fashioned, but I think we are the only place where nowadays you will come into the conference room, you will not see a single laptop, you will not see an iPad, not even an iPhone. We have a legal pad in front of us, and that's it.
1: So on the other side, sometimes, of collegiality, there are dissents. And I thought we could talk about dissenting a little bit. Um, you sometimes are uh, more hard hitting in dissent than you are in majority opinions. And you've actually announced some dissents orally from the bench, which is a pretty rare and strong statement of opposition to majority opinion. Can you tell us a little bit about how you view dissents in particular and their importance?
2: As a dissenter, you don't have the same restraint that you have as you're writing for the court. If I'm writing for the court, I will have taken notes at conference, and I will try to make sure that I have accommodated the views of the colleagues who are on the same side. So when I'm writing for the majority, I I have never been able to write an opinion as though I were queen. I mean, if I tried, then I would get these dear Ruth letters. I can't join your opinion if you're going to cite that case, or if you put in this, I will be glad to join. So, right. so it's a collegial. The opinion for the court is a goes through a collegial process. Uh, you do have more freedom, and but even even when we divide five four, um, very often the the four in dissent will get together to decide what the the li- what lines. The dissent should pursue.
3: Yeah.
2: So, um, a dissent. In, in our system, dissents have been very influential. I mean, go, going way back, think of the most dreadful decision the court ever released Dred Scott. There were two dissenters. The one by Justice Curtis is particularly excellent. Think of the civil rights cases in, what was it, 1883, and then Plessy against Ferguson. The first justice, John Marshall Holland, dissented. Mm-hmm. Think of the free speech cases around the time of World War I and the dissents for just two justices, Holmes and Brandeis. Mm-hmm. We have a history of dissents becoming the law of the land, mm. and when I write in dissent, I am hopeful either that Congress will see that the court got it wrong. You can do that if it's a question of interpreting a statute. Mm. That was true in the Lilly Ledbetter case. Right. Congress could fix it. Constitutional decisions can be fixed only if the Constitution is amended or the court changes its mind. Amendments are powerfully hard to get approved in, in, in our system. So you're looking to a future court to see the error in which your colleagues today <coughs> have fallen.
1: Um, justice, as you've become more senior on the court, you now get to dis- uh, assign uh, some of the most important dissenting opinions because you are uh, the most senior justice on the more liberal side of the court now. Has that been uh, a big change for you, how has that experience changed the way you've approached
2: your work? I stepped into Justice Stevens' shoes when, Abby, when you were clerking for me, he held that position. Yeah. When we divided 5-4, he was most often the most senior justice. And I think you will have noticed that he kept um, more dissents for himself than he assigned to others. <laughs> <coughs> There's, there's a consensus. I mean, everybody agreed that I should, I should have written the disagreement with the court's position on the Commerce Clause in the Affordable Health Care yeah. case. Everybody agreed I should, have, I should have written the dissent in the Shelby County case that upset the key provision of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And the same thing in Hobby Lobby. But I do try to be fair and spread out the dissents so so there's more or less of of an even even division.
1: From my chair, it's nice to see you writing those dissents. Um, uh, Another product of your longevity on the court is that you've lived through two chiefs. Uh, You lived through the tenure of Chief Justice Rehnquist, and now, of course, there's Chief Justice Roberts, and there's been this generational shift to some extent on the court. Uh, How has that changed things on the court, if at all?
2: Chief Justice Roberts had a very good role, mo- role model. It was Chief Justice Rehnquist because Justice Roberts clerked for the, for the old chief. I'd say that um, there's a little more fl- flexibility at argument with the old chief. You saw this many times. The red light goes on. The lawyer's in the middle of a sentence. Chief says... Case submitted, call the next case. <laughs> um, Chief Justice Roberts tends to let lawyers and even justices finish <laughs> <laughs> finish their sentence. And the same thing at conference. The, at conference, we go around the table in strict seniority order, each justice saying what he or she th- thinks about the case. And Chief Justice Rehnquist, more often than, than not, when we... All had our say. Said so it's enough. It, the rest of it will come out in the writing. There's a, a little more cross-table conversation now than than there once once was. But for the most part, there isn't a large difference between the way the Rehnquist Court operated and the way the Roberts Court operates. Chief Justice Roberts'
1: clerk for Chief Justice, White. yes, right. So. Um, so there's a lighter side, of course, to your seniority, increased seniority on the court. And that's, become, that's because, as many of you may know, the justice has become something of a pop culture icon uh, to the young and liberal set. And I learned this definitively when my husband came home one day from Washington with this T-shirt that had this sort of gangster version of you on it uh, with the words uh, RBG all uh, splayed across the front. And now I have a collection, one is Notorious RBG. And my personal favorite, you can't spell the truth without Ruth. Um, So, so, uh, my favorite, my favorite. So, why has this happened? Uh, What do you make of all of uh, this?
2: Two words. Uh, One is longevity. I've been there now for 21 years, and I am the... Eldest justice, not the most senior. I'm number five in seniority. But. And the other is, is social media. I mean, there were no tumblers. In, in <laughs> that, not, that, not that long ago. But the T-shirts, they started, the year I was appointed to the court, the National Association of Women Judges held a reception for Justice O'Connor and for me and gave us T-shirts. And hers says, I'm Sandra, not Ruth. And mine says, I'm Ruth, not Sandra. (laughs) And and then the next t-shirt was after Bush v. Gore. It was a picture of me and the words, I dissent. (laughs) Most of my colleagues, when they are dissenting, say, I respectfully dissent. Now, if you read, a, a singer of the dissenting opinion, where, I want to take one of Stephen's favorite expressions, the court's opinion is profoundly misguided, <laughs> or Scalia, the court's opinion is not to be taken seriously, and then, and how, how is that a respectful right. dissent? So what the press hadn't noticed is I never used respectfully. Before or after Bush or what I, what I tend to do is avoid it by saying let's say the Court of Appeals is being reversed I say for these reasons, I would affirm mm-hmm. the judgment of the Court of Appeals. or if <clears throat> I think the Court of Appeals was wrong, and the rest of the um, the court thinks they were right, I will say, and for those reasons, I would reverse the decision that, that way I can avoid. Mm-hmm. Avoid respectfully. (laughs) Then there was a t shirt, there was a t shirt after Shelby County, the voting rights case, and that was I Love uh, RBG. And now this Tumblr, which is over the top.
1: I think I would like that shirt for the future. Um, So just one more question before we open it up to all of you for questions. Um, This is New York, and we are just a stone's throw away from Lincoln Center, so I can't resist asking you about your other great love, apart from your family, and that's the opera. Um, So Justice, how has your passion for the opera shaped your view on life or law? And the obligatory question, uh, if you could be any diva or any character (laughs) in an opera, who
2: would you be? Lawyers don't come across very well in opera. (laughs) And my best example is De It's the classic case of ineffective assistance of counsel. Eisenstein complains that his lawyer was so ineffective that he got for Eisenstein three extra days in jail. <laughs> and if we think of Gilbert and Sullivan. There um, there are lawyers and judges galore, and Gilbert and Sullivan operas, but they are uh, portrayed in a kind of, uh, I think there's no greater satire in in all of writing than Gilbert's about his colleagues at the bar and at uh-huh. the bench, so I can't say that there's a, a, a link between uh, the law and my, my love of opera, but you ask what role I would pick, it would be the Marceline in Rosenkavalier, and the story of a woman who is just at the point where she's becoming mature, and she realizes that her kind of youthful ways that that part of her life is over, and she has to adjust to being uh, a fully adult
3: hmm.
2: woman. So I love the Marsha um, It would be very hard for me to pick one diva, but I would certainly put on the list uh, Marilyn Horn and Beverly Sills and Renata T'Amaldi. <laughs>
1: Um, This has been just such a treat to have this opportunity to talk to you. Uh, We'd like to open the opportunity to you guys. There are microphones in the aisles. Um, Please line up to ask your questions, but a couple of ground rules. Uh, Please do keep in mind that Justice Ginsburg, as a sitting justice, cannot answer certain types of questions. She cannot answer questions about any case that is currently before the court or may come before the court, or any issue that is before the court or may come before the court. And this is actually called the Ginsburg rule from her confirmation hearings. And uh, even though we are on the great upper west side of Manhattan, please, no speeches. Uh, just, <laughs> uh, just, just some questions and try to keep them brief so we can get a lot of people into the line. Um, so why don't we start over here, if you're ready, sir? Uh,
4: my name is Gerald Walpin, and I must say- Hello, Gerald. How are you today? I, I, I want to do say that you have honored us by your appearance here, and I, I really appreciate seeing you and seeing how healthy you look and how good you sound. Thank you. My short question is one that relates to an issue that a lot of the public is interested in about the Supreme Court televising its arguments and what. Is your position on that, if you can say? And if you have one position, can you give us an idea of of what the other side says about
2: it? May I say first that Gerald and I go back a long way. I think you were in the U.S. Attorney's Office when I was clerking for Judge Palmieri.
4: I remember well having lunch with you and hearing having discussions with you in the lunchroom at that time, yes.
2: So televising the Supreme Court proceedings. One reason that the court is reluctant to have the proceedings televised is it would convey the wrong impression of what an appellate case is. The advocates come before the court, and they have a precious half hour aside. It's fleeting. The court comes to the bench after having spent hours and hours reading the opinions below, relevant portions of the record, the briefs, prior decisions of the court. We spend many, many hours with the written part of the, of the case. So for the public to think it's a debate, the oral argument is a debate between two advocates and the best debater will win, that's not so. So it's a fear of misunderstanding what a case on appeal is and what are the ingredients that go into the judge's decision. That's one reason why the court is reluctant. Another reason is the fear that there can be snippets taken out of the oral argument tape and it will give a wrong impression of what the argument really was. Another reason, some of my colleagues would prefer not to be celebrities. that They are members of the court and they don't wanna be in, in the popular magazines or, or quoted. Now, that's one side The court has made some accommodations. Now uh, the tapes of the oral argument are available the same week as the argument. And so to give the other side of the picture, if you give out the tapes, those could be distorted too. So if you have the audio part, why not the visual part? But I think the, the major concern, at least for me, is a misunderstanding of what the appellate process is.
1: I've got a question from this side now.
5: Thank you, Madam Justice, a wonderful speech. My name is Jim Pocinich, I'm a docent here. My question deals with probably the last 10 years of the court as a layman looking at it. Some of the critical decisions appear to be more political in nature than jurisprudent. Do you think the court as it sits today is more political than the court has been the previous 20, 30, 40 years?
2: My answer is no. And something that the press doesn't emphasize is that the, the unanimity rate on this court, at least on the bottom line judgment, is one of the highest in, in history. I think we were, well, you, we were unanimous in well over 60% of the cases last term, divided five to four in only 10 cases. So for the most part, there aren't these sharp divisions, of course, in the most watch cases. Uh, those are the cases in which we, we, we do divide. But think of, if you, if you think that the, the court is political, which I don't, think back to the court of the 1930s, the court that Franklin Delano Roosevelt had when he, when he became president, that court was striking down state and federal social and economic regulation because it was inconsistent with their notions of, of liberty and due process. Um, so were those, were those justices, would you rate them as political, or was it their judicial philosophy that led them to decide those cases? As
3: they did. Thank you.
1: Shall we go back to good this side for another question?
5: I'm not going to make speech justice, but I must uh, recall the fact that you and I were at James Madison High School at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I'm older than you are. <laughs> and we were also, as I recall, in the first year class of uh, Professor Kaplan. In federal procedure at the same time.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, One of the, well, I guess um, this, he was the single best teacher I ever had. Mm-hmm. I love that sure. civil procedure class.
5: <laughs> Do you remember his, what ho? He used to say what ho all the time in yeah. answer mm-hmm. to a question. And anyway, my, my question is maybe impolitic and unanswerable. There are now three Jewish justices and six Roman Catholic justices. Justice Stevens, Stevens, uh, four years ago, was the last Protestant judge. And um, I'm wondering whether or not if you could hypothetically transport this court to the court that existed when you were doing your gender discrimination cases, whether or not you think that the result would have been different in those cases by reason of religious beliefs of the majority of the court?
2: I don't think so. Um, it is extraordinary that in this country, we, we should have three Jews and six Catholics, one of them a convert to Catholicism, Justice Thomas. Um, <laughs> But do I think that this court would decide the 70s cases differently? No. Um, I don't think so. We've been criticized for not being representative enough, and I suppose that's one way when there's no member of the dominant religion on the court. But think of think of this great city of New York. We have lots of diversity on the court. We have... One from the Bronx, Justice like, oh, yeah. So. <laughs> I'm from Brooklyn. Uh, Justice Scalia grew up in Queens. Um, and Justice Kagan right here in, in Manhattan. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a New Yorker's view of diversity. Yeah. And then, <laughs> but then it, it, remember back to the court before this one. One state was vastly overrepresented, and that was the small, well, small in population the state of Arizona had two justices, O'Connor and the Chief. So, going back uh, a ways, when Hoover appointed Cardozo, there was um, Justice Frankfurter was on the court. Um, there was Hughes had been appointed from New York, so there was a New Yorker. Mm. But I think the president wisely did not think that geographical representation or religion should be conclusive. Something you would take into account, yes, but not decisive. Mm. Another question.
4: Yes, my name is Jeffrey Lakin, and. Uh, I was also at Cornell when you were there. Uh, (laughs) But my question is, if you could rewrite the Constitution of the United States today, what changes would you write into the Constitution today?
2: Number one on my list would be the Equal Rights Amendment. (laughs) Our Constitution is a remarkable document and it starts out, the preamble reads, we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. So who were we the people? Most, Most people were left out. Not only people held in human bondage, but half the population and Native Americans as well. But over now more than 200 years, our democracy has become more and more inclusive, so people who were once left out are now part of the, of the political community. Even so, every constitution in the world written since the year 1950 has, an equal, has a provision to the effect of men and women are persons of equal stature. So when my three granddaughters, look at their pocket constitution for a provision like that in the United States, they don't find it. It's the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment. It came in in 1868. But the framers of that amendment, if they had been asked, does this mean that women enjoy equal citizenship stature, they would say, well, we don't mean to change any of that. But it's, it's changed. Today, I would like to see that statement as part of the uh, most fundamental principles. That would be. That would be the.
4: Thank you very much.